Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We are thrilled to bring you now the perspective of someone out of Florida and West Point who has a commanding understanding of Europe, working with Admiral Stravitas at NATO, and of course his leadership, his former U.S. commanding general in Europe for American troops. Ben Hodges joins us today. General, thank you so much uh, for joining us. I want you to convey to our listeners and viewers across this nation right now what is the number one thing our military can do to assist NATO and to assist Ukraine. Well, the presence, Tom, of American soldiers is always such a, a powerful uh, message of assurance to allies and also of warning to the Kremlin. Uh, the Kremlin does not want to take on the U.S. Army or Air Force or Navy, especially either alone or as part of NATO. So the deployment of uh, American troops to the eastern flank of NATO, I think, was a good move uh, and a strong signal. If we further deploy army to Lithuania, which you know encyclopedic, or we deploy navy through the Bosphorus into the Black Sea as Ukraine begs Turkey to shut down the Bosphorus to Russian uh, mil mil military uh, ships, if we do that, how will that change it for Ukraine? What is its signal now for Ukraine? Well, of course, Ukraine is not an island. It it's strategically important for all of us, including Russia, because of where it sits on the Black Sea. It's why Catherine the Great um, stole Crimea back at the end of the 18th century. Uh, so Turkey, our ally, uh, could really change the calculus for the Kremlin if Turkey were to close the straits, which it's entitled to do because of its sovereignty, to Russian Navy. That would, that would make a significant impact on Russian thinking. Uh, what the United States and our allies are doing by reinforcing NATO's eastern flank, of course, tells the Russians, do not let this get out of control. Do not let it spill over into a NATO country, because then that will also completely change the situation. What will you listen for from General Austin, now holding court as Secretary of Defense at the Pentagon? I would like to hear him say that we are accelerating the delivery of weapon systems uh, that Ukraine needs. I mean, we need something like a Berlin airlift in terms of uh, quantity and speed to get more air defense uh, systems specifically. Well, this is, General, this is critical. Do we need to put U.S. troops in the Lviv right now to go across from Poland, a NATO country, X number of miles into Lviv and set up camp in western Ukraine to say enough? No, I, I agree with the president here that, um, that we don't need to have NATO soldiers, American soldiers, inside Ukraine, uh, but what we can do is working with our Polish allies, establish a line of communication that's, that can send what we call white convoys, non-military convoys, carrying all the stuff that Ukraine needs towards Lviv, and then the Ukrainians would distribute it onward. I think we don't want to get to a situation where by our actions, we end up with Russians and Americans fighting each other. Uh, where 
Ben, just to give you a sense, uh, the U.S. actually uh, just put out uh, this headline coming across, no new troop deployments currently planned, but possible. Why is it so important to not have troops necessarily in Ukraine from the United States? Why do you think that that is a tactical misstep? So, or let, let me caveat that. I was disappointed when the 150 National Guardsmen uh, from Florida actually were pulled out of their training mission that has been going on for six years there in Yavariv. I wish that they were all still there. But when you bring in additional troops, uh, this, this then looks like escalation. And keeping all of our allies together is an essential part of, of our resistance. And so... I think that in this case, we want to avoid a situation that ends up uh, with NATO forces going against Russian forces when it's not in a situation of Article 5. Ben, uh, there has been discussion from European nations about contributing more troops to NATO in the surrounding nations, not necessarily directly uh, coming into conflict with Russia. What's your view on their capacity to increase troops, especially given the non-military action that you've seen from the likes of Germany post-World War II? Well, uh, it's a fair point. I think what we're going to see is uh, NATO reconsider uh, our compliance with the so-called NATO-Russia Founding Act and that we will go to permanent basing in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, and Romania of U.S. and or other NATO troops. Uh, we have not done this uh, in a good faith effort that even though Russia had abrogated the NATO-Russia Founding Act, we were complying with the provisions that say no permanent basing. I think this is going to change. I think we will see more NATO troops, particularly in the Baltic region. We really need to improve our air and missile defense in that region, and Germany and the Netherlands have the have a lot of capability where they could help here. General, can I work through that line from the Ukrainian leader with you in real time? When you hear a line like this, Russian occupation forces are trying to seize the Chernobyl power plant. Our defenders are giving their lives so that the tragedy of 1986 will not be repeated. We've reported this to the Swedish leader. This is a declaration of war against the whole of Europe. Can you help me interpret that? General, what does that mean, that last line, when they go to somewhere like Chernobyl, and you know the history there, what does that mean? So, um, two, two or three aspects of this. First of all, uh, Ukrainian forces are achieving a lot of tactical successes against Russian forces. You, you won't get much coverage on this from Moscow, but for sure, lots of Ukraine, uh, Russian aircraft, helicopters are being shot down, tanks are being destroyed. We're going to start seeing more and more video and reports of Russian losses, I think, as uh, the situation becomes more clear. So that's important. Now, when President Zelensky, who I met three weeks ago in Kiev, uh, a tenacious guy, uh, when he talks about declaration of war, of course, I don't take it in the, in the means of a U.S. legal definition of declaration of war. But without a doubt, um, this is it is time for European leaders to be open-eyed and talk clearly about who we're dealing with. For sure, the Kremlin sees this as war, whether it's with ships, tanks, nuclear weapons, disinformation, cyber, if Russia is always in a war state of mind, it may not uh, always involve weapons. In this case, I think President Zelensky is exactly right. General Hodges, I want you to speak to the American people right now. 
and this is so urgent out of Vietnam, of the certitude of technology in military. And General Powell, of course, was steeped in that, that it didn't work, and that military was a tough thing with maximum force applied when needed. You're an infantry guy. When there's a silly phrase, boots on the ground, you lived it. Tell me as an infantry guy how we apply a Powell-like force against Mr. Putin. Uh, thank you, Tom. Well, of course, future, future war, which we're in already, will involve everything from drones, artificial intelligence, uh, the advantages of quantum, quantum computing, but the disadvantages if our adversaries are using that because that will break down the security of all of our uh, IT systems, our communications networks. Uh, this is, this is going to change things. And, of course, their ability to disrupt our uh, GPS targeting and navigating uh, systems. So that's there. But what did we watch for the last three months? Endless video of rail cars carrying tanks and artillery and armored fighting vehicles, uh, big steel Russian ships, submarines. So it's you get more uh, new technology, but you still are going to have people in trenches, st people still fighting with rockets and artillery. That's part of it. And Russia clearly uh, intends to use blunt force. They're already em employing this. But with more electronic warfare, uh, they really have capability to jam that uh, we have fallen uh, behind. General Hodges, we appreciate your time, sir, and thank you for being with us. Ben Hodges there, the former U.S. commanding general in Europe. We're looking for some guidance now. Peter Oppenheimer of Goldman, first on equities. I want to get to you first, Peter, and thanks for being with us, sir. Just a simple one. I've asked so many people. You've done the research. You've got an outlook. All your suggestions. What changed this morning? What did you have to rip up after what we've seen play out across Ukraine? Hi, John. Yeah, look, I think that uh, the markets respond in real time. And the most obvious impact of what we've seen in this escalation is just a rise in uncertainty. And that means a rise in risk premium. Uh, we estimate that each uh, 20 basis point rise in risk premium knocks around 5% off the equity market. And uh, we've seen something about twice that, which is quite large relative to historically what we've seen with political events. Uh, and it should be said that, generally speaking, political events, as long as they don't have big macro spillovers, tend to fade and you tend to get some kind of rally. Uh, now, obviously, this is a very uncertain situation and there are some major political and economic Im implications, not least of which, of course, is via energy prices. Um, we were already seeing a fairly decent correction in most equity markets because of the fears of higher inflation and interest rates. Those that were more defensive and perhaps more value orientated, particularly those in Europe, are now firmly in uh, correction territory as well. But I would say that if we look at our tactical indicators, our risk appetite indicator, for example, the markets are now really pricing quite a big slowdown and positioning has become quite negative. And typically from these sorts of levels in that indicator, we do get a rally. So just a, a couple of days ago, I was speaking with a portfolio manager who represented a sea change, basically saying go toward Europe, go toward European equities and away from the U.S. because of the hiking cycle. Has that narrative completely got shifted, though, on its head, even with the valuation story, just simply because the risk is that much higher in that region? 
Well, certainly Europe is, is much more exposed, both economically and, of course, in terms of proximity. But I don't think it really changes the fundamental underlying issues. First of all, the European economy is actually pretty robust at the moment, much different to the situation, say, after the financial crisis. To your point, the policy cycle uh, is less aggressive in Europe. In fact, fiscal policy is still easing. Interest rates are likely, at least in the Eurozone, to be rising at a much slower pace. And we've got strong private sector balance sheets in Europe. We have more exposure to value, to energy stocks uh, and to other areas of the market that investors have been tilting towards. And we should also recognise that valuations are reasonably good. I mean, if you take the stock 600, for example, it's trading on a P of about 14 times now, having peaked at around 18 much cheaper than the US and pretty much in line with its long run average. So in the short term, of course, uncertainty is going to be a big drag to this market. But fundamentally, it looks reasonably sound. And we do remain actually overweight on a, on a one year view. Peter, in your geography at the London School of Economics, which folks is world class, even long ago and far away when Mr. Oppenheimer darkened the door, there's an idea of the European experiment. It is under threat today, Peter as you and I have never seen, even with a collapse in 91. Frame for us this moment and how Europe must adapt. Which institution do you look for, or does Goldman Sachs look for, to provide a new stability for Europe? Well, it's a great question, but we should emphasize that the institutional framework across Europe has strengthened dramatically since the days of the financial crisis and the sovereign debt crisis. Obviously, we've had a ramp up in the available instru instruments that can be used on a Europe-wide basis to deal with any systemic shocks. And that's, that's a, a significant positive. And we should note that, for example, uh, while sovereign spreads have widened a little bit uh, in places like Italy, it's been very modest relative to what we've seen in previous periods where there have been heightened uncertainty. Uh, and in, uh, and uh, I would say that from that perspective, things are looking a lot more robust. That being said, one of the critical issues for Europe, of course, is energy security. Europe has been ahead globally in terms of its focus on decarbonisation and ramping up investment in things like renewables. And I think this adds a new degree of urgency to that programme uh, because that's what Europe is going to have to uh, um, really agree on in order to uh, become more independent in terms of its sources of energy. And Peter, great to catch up with you, sir. As always, a difficult moment for the continent and for the people of Ukraine. Thank you. Peter Oppenheimer at Goldman. <coughs>When I first read Timothy Ash many years ago, I'm going to guess at Bear Stearns, but I really can't remember, Tim. And the answer is it jumped off the page. Tim Ash is one of the most acute writers and thinkers on Europe and strategy. He is senior EM sovereign strategist at Blue Bay on this historic day. Tim Ash, thank you so much for taking time with us today. I want to focus on the EM of Eastern Europe. Take us from Estonia down to Poland. What is your biggest worry as Putin attacks? Well, the biggest worry for the market is uh, is Russia itself, right? I mean, uh, I think, we're, this, as, as has been mentioned, I mean, this is the, the biggest, it's a systemic 
geopolitical events in Europe, the biggest one since the Second World War. Remember, we had the fall of the Berlin Wall, which was a positive. This is a big negative. And I think, you know, those countries uh, surrounding Ukraine and Russia, you know, the Baltics, Poland, Romania, uh, will be very worried now. I, mean, I don't think Putin is going beyond Ukraine. Uh, but I think this is a game changer in terms of European security. I mean, NATO has got to really step up its act. We're going to see a big increase in defence spending because of this. But at the moment, it's, the, the, the focus really is on Russian markets, and they've been collapsing today. I mean, uh, you know, lots of talk about fortress Russia. Uh, interestingly, Russians themselves didn't see this coming, and I think they've been panic selling across the board of Russian assets. Russians didn't believe their own leaders on this one, which is, uh, which is why Russian assets have been, been falling so, uh, so aggressively today. Tim, we worked through this together eight years ago over Crimea when I was in London. And, and Tim, this is different. And you know it's different. And as you say, Fortress Russia, a lot of people have talked about that recently, that President Putin prepared for this moment, has tried to insulate the economy, run a budget surplus, raise capital. Tim, just how insulated are they? Well, I was the first person to coin the phrase Fortress Russia back in 2015. Uh, and, and Putin's been planning this. This has been all about building those balance sheets. He's been determined to go into Ukraine for a long time. I've written it. I argued it back in 2015. 2015 there was likely to be a defining war between Russia and Ukraine. And this is it, unfortunately. Um, now, Russia, you know, it has the balance sheet. Uh, but the level of sanctions we're likely to see because of this. Uh, Putin's, it's going to be pariah Russia, pariah Putin. Uh, and it's going to be very difficult to do any business with Russia. That means higher borrowing costs, less investment, less growth, lower living standards. Uh, and Russians already are not really happy with their lot in life. Remember, in Kazakhstan, we had some social arrests recently because of precisely that point. So this, this makes Russia weaker. This, and uh, likely, if it's regime change in Ukraine, uh, what's likely to happen is that any new government that emerges in Ukraine will be sanctioned by the West as well. So Russia, Russia will have to pay the cost of rebuilding Ukraine and Belarus, and its economy is going to be in a pretty dire state because of sanctions. Tim, what's the fallout for the broader emerging market complex, given the fact that food prices are likely to surge, given the fact that wheat uh, production could be disrupted, all of the potential commodity complex uh, eruptions that we're seeing today feeding out into the importers in the emerging market world? Look, I mean, the market was so sanguine about this, right? I mean, it assumed it wasn't going to be a globally systemic event. It is. Right. I mean, this is about hardcore European security. It's about energy. It's about, you know, heating European homes. Uh, and I think the fallout, as we've seen today, is very, very significant. Uh, you know, energy prices higher, <coughs> supply disruptions. Are there going to be disruptions in manufacturing production in Europe because of this? Uh, in emerging markets, you know, it's, it's about energy importers versus energy exporters. Places like Turkey, Central Europe, Asia. Uh, you know, they import a lot of energy. They're right. going to be uh, hit by, you know, higher inflation. And globally, it's stagflation, I guess, is, is, the, is the, the fear here. Mm. Timothy Ash, what is the power of, I'm going to say, dominant, more visible, more stable emerging market nations? What is the power in place here of, say, India or Indonesia or to bring it over to Europe, um, Latvia? What are their power right now? Well, I said, not much, unfortunately. A lot of emerging markets have, have lots of structural issues, reform issues. 
Uh, I mentioned winners and losers in terms of the energy balance. India is a, a huge energy importer, as is Turkey. So I think, you know, people are just waiting to see how this pans out, what it means for global commodity prices. You know, you mentioned already uh, global central banks, how are they going to respond to this? Uh, you know, pretty uncertain, but, you know, geopolitics matters and it's here to stay. And, and as I said, this is a game changer. It's him. You used the stagflation word moments ago. Who's that for? The whole region? Or one particular country? Well, globally, right? I mean, you think uh, a global yeah. story energy. back to stagflation? That's the ultimate story now, not just a tail <laughs> well, risk. Is that your base case? Uh, well, stagflation is lower growth, high inflation. Uh, the risk here is that we see further supply disruptions around energy, uh, and that hits global growth. And we, uh, it's, I mean, it, inflation is here. That's the reality. As consumers, we know that. Central banks might be trying to sell us a different story. But uh, we're all, we all see inflation, and it's, it's hard to see it falling quickly, and, and certainly this episode will not help that. Tim, wonderful to catch up with you. Tim Ash Tim, there thank you. of Blue Bay. Kona Hick joins us now, head of research at EDNF. Man, Kona, we know Chicago Board of Trade. We do not know Novorysk spot. How critical is the wheat dynamic for Russia right now? It's huge. Um, Russia, together with Ukraine, they account for 29% of global wheat exports. So at a time when global wheat market is already pretty tight fundamentally, we can't really afford to see a big player come out of action. So supplies are tight, demand is inelastic, and the world does heavily rely on this region. Black Sea exports are absolutely critical for world supplies right now. Do you believe that soft commodities led by Russian wheat will be part of sanction announcements today? Day and indeed in the coming days. This is where I have my doubts because unfortunately food inflation is a growing story around the world. Um, the Middle East, North Africa in particular, rely heavily on Russia and Ukraine for their wheat imports. If there were to be a spike, and we're already seeing wheat as one of the best performing commodities so far, um, if that were to lead to further hikes in, in prices, then I think food inflation could be a political politically, you know, really, really challenging situations. So I feel that that is one area where I think sanctions might just be not, might not, not take place. If you look back in 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea, the exports of wheat continue to take place. So I'm hoping this will be the same this time round. Kona, a lot of nations have been preparing for this. We've even heard from Germany talking about how they will be able to be independent of Russian oil and gas, should that be necessary. Have you seen anything on the ground, any types of diversions in terms of some of the import and export pathways in response and in preparation for this invasion? No. So, um, I mean, certainly on energy, I know that, for example, Germany um, has diversified quite a bit away from um, Russian oil. You know, they've got a, quite a bit of wind power themselves. They are using more LNG. Um, luckily, Europe is a big agricultural producer themselves, so they don't actually import, um, so they won't be relying on Russia for any of their imports, although they do rely a little bit on um, 
Ukraine for their sunflower oil, so vegetable oils right now, cooking oils, if you like, are extremely tight globally. Um, so there's no room for slack there. But I think energy-wise, yes, natural gas, obviously, the European um, zone is basically 40% dependent on the region. Um, it's going to be extremely costly to divert that away into LNG and other resources. Kona, how much have you revisited your expectations for oil and gas prices, what your base case is now, uh, that what, as John said, the tail risk has become the base case in Europe? Yeah, so I think $100 was $100 barrel for crude oil was a given just based on fundamentals. Now there was there was this potential geopolitical risk premium, which now, as you mentioned, is now becoming no longer premium, but has to be actually priced in now. So the worst case scenario has actually come to fruit. Um, maybe we start at $100. I think $120 is probably a given now from here on. Um, Again, similar to what I'm seeing in the food exports and wheat exports, I'm not entirely convinced that there will be embargo on U.S. energy and uh, sorry, uh, Euro, Euro, um, Russian energy, because Biden in the USA is just trying to control prices at home. Europe needs lower fuel bills. I think it would be political suicide if they were to put sanctions on um, Russian oil. It would be it would just cause a massive spiral and therefore more. Mm. Inflation. Kona, you are a grizzled pro at this. And of course, the joy across economies always comes back to the discussion of oil. When an amateur like me says to you, can the U.S. come to the rescue? Can we move ships across the Atlantic to bring hydrocarbons to Europe? How do you respond to such foolishness? No, it's just on a freight um, basis, it wouldn't work. Um, the U.S. had been enjoying almost self-sufficiency in terms of oil. They used to be a net importer. Then shale oil came and they became a net exporter. But the shale oil production is plateauing. Um, and if anything, they now have to tap into their own oil reserves, the government strategic reserves. So the U.S. can't come to the rescue. Um, for gas, you've got the likes of Qatar and um, might try and help in. But for crude... OPEC themselves are sitting on not too much spare capacity. Um, so what 100 or 120 even dollar oil will tell you is that we need to ration demand. So what will happen eventually is you're going to see some kind of economic growth stalling and ultimately demand will come off because there isn't so much slack unless we get a deal with Iran. Iran may, you know, with a nuclear deal, that may lead to some more bows coming out. Kona, thank you. As always, Kona Haig there of EDF and MAN. We adjust, as does Morgan Stanley Economics. Robert Rosen joins us now, senior U.S. economist. Robert, Steve Englander over at Standard Charter has been res resilient before this uh, historic moment of the 5-6-7 rate hike team may be a little bit off the mark. Do you adjust back down to three rate hikes this morning? Well, thanks for having me, Tom. We still see the Fed on track to raise interest rates in March by 25 basis points. But of course, there are now an increased uh, degree of uncertainty in the economic outlook. So the Fed has to weigh what they're seeing in terms of domestic economic conditions, the strong labor market, uh, the resilient right. consumer, uh, and then the inflationary backdrop. The Fed has to weigh that against the potential risks to the economic outlook going forward. Let's go back to McChesney, Martin, and Truman into Eisenhower of the Korean War. Is this a point where the White House says to Chairman Powell, look, we really need your help. This is what we'd like you to do? You know, the Fed 
will maintain its independence in monetary policy, of course, but the Fed has to ask important questions. And this is not the first time that the Fed has had to grapple with domestic economic conditions that might call for rate hikes, but international conditions that present some potential risks to the economic outlook. So that's a lot to weigh there. It does make a, a case for caution. So it helps the Fed with the debates we were having in recent weeks about 50 basis points or 25 basis points in March. It makes that decision a little bit easier, uh, but the Fed doesn't want to get caught that backfooted uh, if risks to the economic outlook don't prove to be as significant and they still have to deal with inflation. Rob, are you ready to use the S word yet? Stagflation. Are you and the team there yet? Is it part of the conversation for you? I don't think we're there yet. This is certainly a type of financial condition shock that pushes inflation and activity in opposite directions. Oil prices are going to put upward pressure on headline inflation that adds to the multitude of inflationary shocks that we've been seeing in recent months. And of course, it can have a negative effect on economic activity. But you look at the way the labor market is today, I know that can turn. But I think we've been surprised time and time again about the resilience of the labor market and the resilience of the U.S. consumer as as remaining the heartbeat, really, of this economic expansion. What's the red line, though, for oil prices? Do you have a sense, Rob, of how high oil prices can get before you start talking about a material downshift in the pace of economic growth? We are certainly seeing the effects of oil prices on consumer wallets. We're looking at, you know, every 10 cent increase in retail gas prices is about a 10 billion annualized hit to consumer budgets. And that has been adding up. It's been stacking up and it's been stacking up with other inflationary pressures. We've been seeing real wages in the red for most groups, save for the lower end of the wage spectrum. If energy prices keep creeping up and they keep real wage growth in the red, then I do think that's where you start to have to get a little bit more concerned about the pace of consumer activity when we're looking at the second half of the year. Is there a precedent for how quickly the economy can shift in response to a shock like this, given all of the dynamism, all of the strength that you've been talking about that we're seeing in corporate balance sheets and beyond? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, things can certainly turn fast, but again, it comes down to where are the fundamentals and where is the heartbeat of the economy, and that's the labor market. And we've seen job growth with incredible momentum, aggregate incomes growing strongly, uh, wage growth at the individual level still growing strongly. So there's still a lot of positive tailwinds in place to keep the domestic economic uh, expansion going strong this year. Um, But of course, things can turn fast, and when they turn fast, it tends to be transmitted through those financial shocks, through uncertainty. Um, And we've seen how the Fed has been responsive to developments like that very quickly in the past. So, uh, uh, you know, pivoting, that pivoting style that we've seen from Chair Powell, um, likely to remain in his toolkit. Do we rationalize, Robert Rosner, that if inflation is 100 basis points higher than expected, or critically, the timeline is extended out of a longer inflation. How do the PhDs at the Fed adapt to that? It's a really tricky question, Tom, because you know typically the knee-jerk reaction is you look at an energy price shock and you think of that 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 might yep. be the T word transitory, right? But it's occurring against this backdrop of a multitude of inflationary shocks, and we do have to start to get concerned about what that could mean for the path going forward. But again, it pushes the dual mandate in opposite directions because you have energy prices now lifting inflation, but also you have to be watchful for the downside risks for activity that, that could potentially have down the line. Rob, wonderful, as always. Difficult moment for you you. and the team, and I imagine going to be talking all morning about what this means for next month. Rob Rosner there of Morgan Stanley. 
This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.